Welcome, everyone. Before we start, I just want to mention a few important points to um, all our viewers. Of course, welcome. And if you're new to the channel, uh, you should know that we do love an active chat, but it must be orderly. So please do use common sense. And to the moderators, first of all, thank you for the work you do. We can't do this without you. And uh, second of all, please do be vigilant and strict because um, the chat must be clean and I expect a bit more activity now than we usually get. And third of all, I just want to say to all of you watching and listening that this is a golden opportunity for you to send some questions and comments through Entropy because this is a brilliant opportunity to ask questions uh, to E. Michael Jones and Jared Taylor and also to do a good deed because uh, the super chats we get through Entropy helps keep us in business. Uh, so your support reinforces our work. So please do send in questions and comments through Entropy and uh, we'll go over to uh, a question session, a Q&A at the end of the debate and you'll find the address on the screen. It's uh, entropystream.live forward slash GTK. So now uh, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for. This debate has been almost two years in the making. Uh, it was in late 2019 that I decided to organize a debate between E. Michael Jones and Jared Taylor. And the reason is, first of all, that I love debates. Uh, I love watching them and analyzing arguments. And the second, uh, second reason is that I was listening to an interview with uh, Dr. Jones where he made some claims that I find interesting. And I think they are claims that should be discussed and taken seriously because I hear them often um, from many different people. And uh, those were claims uh, such as that there is no such thing as race, uh, that the white race doesn't exist, uh, and that the only difference between countries like Germany and Europe and Tanzania, countries in Africa, is Christianity. Um, that Germany became Christian long before uh, African countries uh, and therefore has accomplished more. So that it is religion and not biology that explains the differences. So I contacted both men to invite them. And uh, let me just take a little drink of water. And after a, a few messages back and forth, they both accepted my invitation. So we announced the event in January of 2020, and it was supposed to take place at the uh, Skanza Forum in Zagreb, Croatia, on uh, May 2nd of uh, 2020. And so that's almost a year and a half ago. Uh, and when we announced the event, the crowd, of course, went wild. Obviously, both men have uh, large followings in their own right. And I got messages left and right from people who were excited about this debate. But then COVID happened in early 2020. And in March, April of 2020, uh, the travel restrictions started. And I was asking my uh, friend in Croatia who helped me organize the event uh, if she thought that we could go ahead with the event because at that point we were only guessing what would happen. We had no idea uh, about travel restrictions yet. Uh, and one other factor that complicated thing and that still complicates things with organizing events is that European governments have announced 
restrictions only a couple of weeks at a time. So we've never known beforehand how the travel uh, restrictions will look the next month. So it's been impossible to organize events because of that. So they kept us guessing. The, the politicians kept us guessing all the time, and they're still doing that. Um, but pretty soon it became obvious that we would have to postpone this event because of that, because we couldn't travel to Croatia. And immediately viewers started suggesting to me that I should organize this debate online instead. But I said no. Uh, I was looking forward to meeting Mr. Taylor again and, and Dr. Jones for the first time. We've ne never met before in person. And they also agreed that we should do this in person. Uh, and that's also how, how I want to do things. Organizing these conferences um, is a, a chance to meet other people in person that we usually talk to online. And uh, in my own little way, that's sort of a little revolt against the modern world to get people to meet up in person, uh, dissidents to meet up in person, and to uh, network, connect with each other, and talk like normal hum human beings. Because I do think that we need real-world meetups. And uh, I think it's never been more obvious than now, when we haven't been able to meet up for more than a year, that we actually need to do so. Uh, so we decided to wait, uh, because I had hopes that in a year, uh, everything around COVID could settle down so that we could travel again. Um, but now, more than a year later, it looks more unpredictable than ever. And some government experts have been saying that these restrictions may last for up to 10, 15 years. So uh, we have no way of knowing when we're going to do this. So now it became a question of maybe organizing this debate sometime in the future. We don't know when or hosting it online. Uh, so I think it became very obvious that the right decision was to host it online and uh, both uh, participants in the debate agreed that we should go ahead and do this. And then when travel becomes normal and possible again, uh, I will invite both gentlemen back to Europe uh, for a scans of form, because I, I do think that all of us are determined to get back to normal at some point and to meet up again uh, in a normal way. But that brings us here. And the good news is that, of course, all of you uh, are invited and can watch this debate live as it happens. And you get a chance to send questions in. So in that sense, we get uh, the best of both worlds. And um, I saw someone worry in the debate uh, or in the chat earlier that uh, the debate may be unfair because I am biased in the sense that I do believe that race is real. And I do think that race is important. But that will make no difference here because we will have a uh, classical academic debate format. We have already flipped a coin for who is going to start. And uh, Mr. Jared Taylor will start. We flipped a coin right before we went live. Uh, and then each speaker gets 20 minutes uninterrupted for an opening statement. And then each speaker gets 10 minutes to respond to the opponent's opening statement. And then each speaker gets five minutes for a closing statement. And after that, we will read questions from the audience. And after those preliminary remarks, I want to welcome, uh, first of all, 
Mr. Jared Taylor. Jared Taylor probably needs no introduction, but I'll give him a brief introduction anyway. He has been editing uh, American Renaissance first as a, a physical publication and then as an online publication since the early 90s. He's been hosting um, events, uh, much like my own, but better, of course, uh, in America <laughs> since the 90s. He's been doing this for a long time, and he has written several books as well. And, and I would say that he is probably the foremost spokesman uh, for the importance, relevance of race today. So, uh, Jared Taylor, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Dr. Jones for agreeing to join in this debate. I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Very good. So, uh, and then uh, I want to invite Dr. E. Michael Jones. He has a PhD in American literature. He uh, is the editor and writer for um, Culture Wars magazine. And he has written several books on the, the decline of the West and the predicament we're in. And he has a, a very large following uh, among conservatives, among right-wingers, among uh, many people. He's a very interesting person. And when I've ever had him on my show uh, before, I've had him on a couple of times, it's always been one of the most popular uh, shows. He's always a very popular guest, and a lot of people are interested in uh, what he has to say. So I'm very honored to have you back, uh, Dr. Jones. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Jared, for coming on. And my only regret is that we're not in Zagreb. Oh, I regret that very much. I was looking forward to that trip. Not yes, I think I we all are. But we, we'll try to remedy that in the future. Uh, so when, when things get back to nor normality, we'll have to, we always have to hope, right? Uh, at least then we'll, we'll definitely meet up in person again. Uh, in any case, so we'll let Jared Taylor go ahead with uh, his opening statement 20 minutes from, uh, from now on or from when you start. And uh, you just let me know when you need to have the images uh, up on the screen. And the debate issue is, is race an important reality or a uh, fiction? Well, uh, I have uh, prevailed upon you to let me show a few images. So if we can go there now, and I will start my timer. And so I will go no more than 20 minutes. Thank you. Starting now. So yes, indeed. Uh, the question before us today is race an important reality or a fiction? And I believe that in a single image, I can explain that it is not a fiction. And that would be this image here. I think it would be difficult to argue that the man on the right, uh, the differences between him and the other people in this picture are some kind of fiction. No, there is clearly something more than fiction. It is biology. And even if one accepts the fashionable view that race is some kind of social construct, I would also point out that subjectively, race is real. Race is not a fiction. Uh, look at these people. These people clearly believe that race is an important part of their individual and group identities. Anything that motivates people in this fashion is unlikely to be a fiction. I would also argue that people have been noticing race and not considering it a fiction for thousands of years. What we have here is an image from the Egyptian Book of Gates. This is 2,500 years old. 
And this book distinguished between four races of man. At that time, the Egyptians were familiar with what they called Libyans, Nubians, Asiatics, and Egyptians. I'm sure that if they had been familiar with Caucasians and uh, Eskimos, they would have made a distinction between them as well. And biological distinctions have been observed, noted, and their significance has been taken for granted throughout antiquity. This is a book called The Invention of Racism in Classical Antiquity. And I would like to quote from a passage that appears on page 148. There's a long-standing tradition in Greek and Latin literature of idealizing the concepts of unmixed origin, pure lineage, and autochthony. That means belonging to the land, having been the first people there. This entails explicit statements that intermarriage between peoples produces descendants of inferior quality, physical, mental, and moral, while consistent marriage between men and women belonging to the same people will result in superior human beings. The quality of an entire people is determined by lineage and origin only and will be stable if protected against foreign contamination. And further, autochthony assumes a physical relationship between man and land, which by definition turns an immigrant or descendant of an immigrant into an inferior being. This is a very harsh statement about biological differences. It does not use the word race, but it clearly is an understanding that human groups are different. These biological differences have significance. And you will find statements like this throughout antiquity. And I will quote you simply just one, and this from an Arab, neither a Greek nor a Latin. This is from Ibn Khaldun. He writes another harsh thing. The Negro nations are, as a rule, submissive to slavery because Negroes have little that is essentially human and have attributes that are quite similar to those of dumb animals. Again, an exceedingly harsh statement, but it's out of the mouth of Ibn Khaldun, the 14th century philosopher who's considered one of the great thinkers of the Middle Ages, born and lived in Tunis, North Africa. I don't wish to over-exaggerate the fact of African and non-African differences. I would like to point out that Asians, when they encountered Caucasians, they were likewise struck by how different they were physically and temperamentally. As probably some of you know, Japan was locked up for 300 years in a system known as Sakoku. And in the 19th century, when the Americans came along and opened up the country, they were quite an astonishing phenomenon to the Japanese. Here is an artist's depiction of an American by a Japanese in the late 1860s. As you can see, this artist is struck by the differences between his people and these aliens, these physical astonishing differences. Of course, now that we have entered the modern era, we have far more scientific ways of evaluating and detecting these differences. Here is a scatter plot of something called a principal components analysis. As you can see along the right-hand side, top to bottom, these are geographical areas that are distinguished genetically, mind you, and in different colors. And although it is top to bottom on this graph, we are traveling east to west. And as you can see, it starts with East Asians who are blue, then we get Polynesians, Americans, this is Amer Indians, Central Asian, all the way out to Europe. This is an analysis of the actual genes of people, and it lines up perfectly with, we, with what we understand their origins and their geographical locations to be. Africans are way out here 
on the left because they are genetically so different from people who are non-African. I would add that these principal component analyses can make very fine distinctions between even smaller groups within races. Here you can see East Asians, Southeast Asians, Pakistanis, also Indians. And if you notice here, Indian Brahmins, uh, Indian Brahmins here on the left, you can see in, uh, in, in dark blue, as opposed to Indian lower, lower caste. These are people who've been living side by side for a millennia, and yet they have remained so genetically distinct through the caste system that principal components analysis can distinguish them essentially unerringly. Now, this principal components analysis is something that we associate with very sophisticated genetic analysis, but for just $100, 23andMe will tell you in a very fine-grained way what your genetic heritage is. This is 23andMe's principal components map that plots out the different European groups according to where they live simply by distinguishing between them on the, on the basis of a cheap, very inexpensive genetic test. So you have Bulgarians, Denmark, Druze, Finnish, French. You have all of these different people who are distinguished unerringly by the genes that they carry within themselves. And this is, as I say, so clear and so distinctive that if, for example, you were to send in your uh, DNA to 23andMe, and for, imagine that you came back with results like this. Here is someone that 23andMe determined was 100% Northwestern European, 94% British Isles, a little bit French and German, and the rest unquestionably Northwestern European. This happens to be a person whose ancestors came to the United States over 300 years ago, but the genetics remain what they were and they reflect the nature of this person. This person cannot but be a white person. A white person, his genes say so, his appearance says so, and this is not some kind of fiction or some kind of optical illusion. I would point out that it is a surprise to many people to realize that the races can be distinguished quite accurately by the microbes that choose to live in your mouth. This is a study called oral bacteria create a fingerprint in your mouth. What this found was researchers found that each genetic group in the study was represented by a signature of shared microbial communities. They say each ethnic group, but they're really talking about blacks, whites, Chinese, and Latinos. It goes on to say, this is the first time it's been shown that ethnicity, what they're really talking about is biology, is a huge component in determining what you carry in your mouth. So these microbes, these are people living in the same country, probably eating essentially the same diet, but the microbes can tell them apart. For the microbes, this is not a fiction. This is an important question of where they are going to live. Now, here is another interesting headline. This says babies are racist, which is an absurd use of the word racist, which is always pejorative. But as you see in the highlighted text at the bottom, this study found that babies often develop a preference for faces of members of their own race by the age of three months. This is before they can even talk. 
This is certainly before they can tell fiction from nonfiction. This is certainly before they would be uh, human beings who care about social constructs at all. They can tell race because race is real. Race is something they notice. And it is by no means something that is insignificant in their own lives. I would go on to point out that race is a very important distinguisher in the terms of disease. Different racial groups have vastly different rates of certain kinds of diseases. Cystic fibrosis, for example, is vastly more common among whites than of any other racial group. And every race has diseases that it is more likely to suffer from. Blacks, for example, have much higher rates of prostate cancer than whites. And the genes that account for every bit of this difference have been established. This is not a fiction. And for a doctor to adopt Mr. Jones' point of view and to assume that race is a fiction would be, in my view, malpractice. After all, this article says, what to know about Bidil, the first heart medication marketed specifically for black patients. It's marketed specifically for black patients because it works on blacks and no one else. Again, this is not a fiction. This is has to do with chemical pathways and the physiology of different human groups. Ordinarily, this kind of straightforward assertion of the reality of race never occurs in the mainstream media, but occasionally, very occasionally, it sneaks in. Here in the New York Times is an article called How Genetics is Changing Our Understanding of Race. Here, race is in scare quotes, but the text is, and I extracted it here, I'm worried that well-meaning people who deny the possibility of substantial biological differences among human populations are digging themselves into an indefensible position, one that will not survive the onslaught of science. Science tells us race is real and racial differences are significant. In the animal kingdom, what we call race is known as subspecies. Here is the Wikipedia definition for subspecies. When geographically separate populations of a species exhibit recognizable phenotypic differences, biologists may identify these as separate subspecies. A subspecies is a recognized local variant of a species. And when you think about the human races scattered around the globe, this is a perfect example of a definition of race. And please note the Sunda Island tiger here. As it turns out, there are nine subspecies of tiger. Two are extinct. But here, here is an, an article about the nine subspecies. This is a Sumatran tiger. It takes an expert to distinguish a Sumatran tiger from a Sunda Island tiger from a Bengal tiger. And yet, biology recognizes them as subspecies. And obviously, the differences between human races are vastly greater than this. In the case of heart beasts, this is an African animal. There are likewise nine subspecies, none extinct. This is the swain's heart beast. And I don't see much difference other than color between swain's heart beast and the red heart beast. These are not some kind of optical illusion. Again, for us humans, you have to be a specialist to tell all nine subspecies apart, but there, the, there they are. Back to Swain's and here's the red heart beast. These are biological categories, not fictions. Now let's consider the case of dogs. As it turns out, the human subspecies, the, the aspects of the genome that differ 
from race to race account for about 15% of the human genome. In the case of dogs, the difference is, is the difference is 30%. And as you can see, the tremendous variety in races or subspecies of dog. Would anyone say that these differences in physical appearance, temperament, intelligence, are these some kind of fiction or social construct? I think it would be very difficult to say that that was the case. Likewise, here we have an article that goes all the way back to 1992. If races don't exist, why are forensic anthropologists so good at identifying them? A forensic anthropologist is someone you call in if you discover a body that is decomposed to the point where you can't tell if it's a man or a woman, all you've got is bones. Well, forensic anthropologists can tell the race of a body with no trouble at all. I would go further and point out that people are spending millions of dollars trying to get artificial intelligence programs to do medical diagnostics. And they have gotten programs that can read x-rays. They can read x-rays better than human beings can. But to the surprise of a team that put together a recent AI program, not only can they see things that humans can't, they can see race, even though the team that did the programming didn't teach it about race. It was there whether the people programming it knew it or not. And they can tell race from a x-ray of a hand or a foot or a chest. Moreover, they could tell the race, distinguish the race, even when the quality of the x-ray was so degraded that a human expert couldn't make head or tails of it at all. Well, were the people who programmed the AI delighted by this? No, they took the view of Dr. Jones. They think race is a fiction. They were appalled that artificial intelligence was able to detect race. And here is a tweet by one of the people who led the team. He says, medical AI, artificial intelligence, has the worst superpower, racism. AI can do something humans can't, recognize the self-reported race of patients on x-rays. This gives AI a path to produce health disparities, as if simply noticing a biological difference that is consistent in all the x-rays that is somehow going to give AI a terrible superpower and make it guilty of racial discrimination and mistreat certain groups rather than others. This is the kind of foolishness that race denial leads us to. Now, I've concentrated on biology because that is the area that it's fashionable to say silly things like race doesn't exist. Of course, it's not just biology. Biology is reflected in temperament and most importantly in intelligence. The races on average are not equal intelligence, but this is something that terrifies our rulers to the point that we have an article in Scientific American. It asks the question, should research on race and IQ be banned? The answer, of course, is yes, because research of this kind might discover things that our rulers would find inconvenient. So here you have a magazine presumably devoted to science that takes the same view as the people who program this artificial intelligence. What science is telling us, what research is discovering has to be ignored because it goes against our preconceived ideological convictions. This is anti-scientific. And I would call the attitude of the people who programmed that X-ray AI one of artificial stupidity rather than artificial intelligence. They want the AI to be stupid. 
Now, I think you all know that in Germany, there is a tremendous bias against anything that could smack of Nazism or racism. But even in Germany, a publisher recently produced this title, The Deconstruction of Race, Social Sciences versus Biology. And it goes on to say, this courageous book illuminates the origin of the race deniers, those who believe race is fiction. Their gradual assertion in Western intellectual life and the serious consequences for freedom of association and scientific discourse. Those aren't the only things that are at risk. Because as you know, today, the idea that's come is that equal treatment is no good anymore. That was the original objective of the American civil rights movement. Treat everybody the same. Stop discriminating and everything will be okay. That's no good because as this image shows, under conditions of equality, everyone treated the same. Some people can reach the apples and pick them and eat them, and short people can't. Of course, the distinction here is one of color, not of height. And so the solution is to treat people differently. This means this darker person on the right can now reach the apples and eat them happily because he is being treated differently. Equity means pe treating people differently. The poor people who ran the civil rights movement, the whites who agreed to that, they never would have dreamed that the objective was going to be to treat people differently. Of course, as we know, equity is not the result. This is more like the reality that happens. Instead of this resulting in some kind of happy conclusion in which everybody ends up equal in the same place. If they do end up equally, it's because the tall guy, in this case, the white guy, the white guy is being <laughs> trampled by those who could not reach the apple the way the white guy could. This is one of the reasons, one of the obvious reasons why race must not be ignored. It is on the basis of race that white people are being made to blame for every shortcoming, every time a non-white person cannot reach the apple, it's the white man's fault. And if this continues, what we see here as reality, in other words, the white man on the ground being trampled on by those who are reaching for the apples and the white man doesn't get a single one, this is what is in store for us if we adopt my opponent's view and say that race is not only unimportant, but that race is a fiction. And I believe that's the end of my 20 minutes. Thank you very much. All right, thank you so much for that, Jared. Uh, and now it's okay. time for Dr. Jones. Um, 20 minutes uninterrupted introductory statement. Our topic today is, is race an important topic or a fiction? And so I'd like to begin our discussion of the concept of race with a reminder that historically, race referred to ethnicity as well as physical characteristics. What uh, Jared Taylor just exposed us to was a deliberate conflation of those two items, okay? But before I get into that, I'd like to explain the difference between categories of the mind and categories of reality by describing the biggest crisis to hit Indiana since the Civil War, 
And I'm talking about the decision to put Indiana on daylight savings time. On April 29, 2005, with heavy backing from Governor Mitch Daniels' economic development plan, and after years of controversy, the Indiana General Assembly passed a law stating that effective April 2, 2006, the entire state of Indiana would become the 48th state to observe daylight savings time. What no one knew at the time was that Indiana had weathered a similar crisis in the 1970s by refusing to set their, reset their clocks twice a year. The unsung heroine in the time change battle of the 1970s was a woman who called into a talk show and opined that her lawn was already brown and that one more hour of sunlight would kill it completely. That argument carried the day in Indiana for almost 40 years, and it was in that woman's honor that I wrote what is probably the only song in existence on daylight savings time. The more philosophically minded among you may have noticed that there is a flaw in her argument. She made a category mistake by confusing categories of nature or reality with categories of the mind. The day is divided into hours based on a category of the mind which can be changed. The year is based on a certain number of days which is fixed and cannot be changed. What does all this have to do with race? Race, as we now understand the term, is a conflation of categories of reality and categories of the mind. I have been asked to defend the proposition that race is a fiction as opposed to an important reality. Those of us who have studied philosophy will recognize that the topic of this debate is based on what philosophers would call a false dichotomy. In order to demonstrate what I mean, I would ask you to look at what I am now holding in my hand. It is a copy of uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. It is what you would call a piece of fiction. It is, in other words, real. Fiction, in other words, is not a fiction. If you think about characters like Hamlet or Shylock or Hester Prynne, the fact that we know their names after centuries and can write books about them, as I did when I wrote The Angel and the Machine, means that these fictions are in some sense more real than any Jew, prince, or Puritan lady you ever met in the real world, even though they are categories of the mind and Shylock and those other people never existed as real people. Fiction in this instance means category of the mind, and that brings me to my thesis. Race is a fiction by which I mean that race as a, as a category of the, is a category of the mind which gets imposed for political purposes. To be more specific, race as we now understand the term is a category of the mind which gets imposed on subject peoples as a form of marginalization and control. According to the OED, race refers to a group of persons, animals, or plants connected by common descent or origin the offspring or posterity of a person, a set of children or descendants, a limited group of persons descended from a common ancestor, a house, family, kindred, a tribe, a nation, or people regarded as of common stock. In Europe in the Middle Ages, everyone belonged to one limited group of persons descended from a common stock or another, but the white race was a completely unknown concept. 
the earliest example of a European author referring to fellow Europeans as white people didn't occur until 1613 when an African king in Thomas Middleton's play, The Triumphs of Truth, looks out on an English audience and declares, I see amazement set upon the faces of these white people, wonderings and strange gazes. When I refer to myself as biracial, meaning that I come from Irish and German stock, I am simply making use of what was once the accepted meaning of the term according to the OED, which defines race as a group of several tribes or peoples forming a distinct ethnical stock. In 1883, Green wrote in his Conquest of England that courage was a heritage of the whole German race. The term race was also used to describe one of the great divisions of mankind. Race in this instance meant having certain physical peculiarities in common. In 1861, Blumenbach grouped these physical peculiarities into five races, the Caucasian, the Mongolian, the Ethiopian, the American, the Malay. But this is, was only one use of the term. So what do we mean when we say that race is real? We mean that ethnicity has always been a category of reality. We mean the physical characteristics are real and they differ depending on what part of plant, the planet you come from. The shape of your nose and the color of your skin are categories of reality. The virtues or vices associated with them, however, are categories of the mind which get applied for political reasons. So to get back to our original example, uh, does the fact that the 24-hour day is a category of the mind mean that there are no differences between night and day? No, of course not. The 24-hour day organizes night and day. It does not replace it. Similarly, categories like the white race, whether they are cited by Jared Taylor or Noel Ignatiev, mobilize biological characteristics for political purposes in a way that is independent of the characteristics themselves. Had the white race been known in the Middle Ages, it would have been called a universal. A universal is something outside of nature, which is brought to nature in order to organize nature and make it, as a result, comprehensible. Universals can also be used to weaponize nature for political purposes. To give a recent example of the manipulation of universals for political purposes, there is a group of people, and I happen to be one of them, who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. This is a category of reality. These people have real identities, they have names and addresses, and presumably all of them are registered voters. And if they're not, they should be. Hillary Clinton, who lost that election, described this group of people as, quote, a basket of deplorables. Now, what type of term is that? I think everyone here would agree that it is a weaponized category of the mind. More specifically, deplorables is a word which describes a category of Hillary Clinton's mind, which has no relation to anything else but Hillary Clinton's mind. Are those people deplorable? Only in Hillary Clinton's mind. Deplorable is a category of the mind based on a category of nature. It is similar to the term feminism, another term which is based on a category of nature, namely woman, but which has been weaponized for political purposes. This becomes apparent when we move from woman to women's rights and from women's rights to abortion. By commandeering the term woman, which is a category of nature, feminists hope to coerce agreement to propositions which are nothing 
but categories of the mind. The term deplorable is also a form of identity theft of the sort which took place last summer in St. Louis when Umar Lee, who started off life as a white boy, became a Negro when he went to high school and ended up as a Muslim, described the people who wanted to prevent the removal of the statue of St. Louis as white supremacists. When they gathered around the statue, that group of people could be seen praying the rosary, which indicates that they were Catholics. If Lee had identified them as Catholics, however, he would have lost that battle. In fact, when I identified them as Catholics in an article in Culture Wars, he did lose the battle. That statue is still standing because Catholics still have rights and white supremacists don't. White supremacist was a category of the mind, but Catholic was a category of reality. Critical race theory is based on sociology. White racism is based on biology, but both ideologies are forms of identity theft, which manipulate categories of the mind for political purposes. The only difference between these two groups is the value judgments which they place on the categories of white and black. In both instances, what began as a description of physical characteristics based on a category of nature gets magically transformed into a category of the mind whose purpose is to justify economic injustice. This is true of 17th century Virginia, where the planter class decided to divide the working class according to skin color, thereby ensuring a docile workforce in which working class whites were considered superior to working class blacks and it is equally true of critical race theory in the 21st century, which simultaneously reversed and maintained the original good-bad dichotomy based on race and used it as a justification for affirmative action, which is also a form of economic injustice. If I asked everyone watching this debate if they were white, most would agree they were. But if I asked them if they were a Mzungu, I would probably get a different response. If you ask me if I am a Mzungu, I would have to say yes, but only when I am in East Africa, because Mzungu is the Swahili word for white guy. You're a Lithuanian if you speak Lithuanian and live in Lithuania, but you're not a Mzungu until you arrive in East Africa. This mutatis mutandis is precisely what happened to Europeans when they emigrated to America. Before their arrival, they had no understanding of themselves as white because both black and white as categories of the mind are dependent on geography and culture, even though the features that make up our understanding are categories of nature, which are independent of context. Because there were no black people in Lithuania, Lithuanians did not consider themselves white. In Vilnius, they were known as Lithuanians. But when Martin Luther King showed up in the Lithuanian neighborhood in Chicago known as Marquette Park, they became white largely because they dared to oppose King's attempt to take over their neighborhood. White is a category of the mind, which even then in 1966 had been weaponized to dehumanize the people it got applied to in order to defeat them in an undeclared war. Unlike race, which is based on characteristics which are undeniably real but insignificant, ethnicity is a universal which is based on man's most important characteristic, the one which distinguishes from every other animal on earth, namely language, which is the commonest manifestation of logos and the essence of what we are as rational creatures. 
Lithuanians come from a certain part of the world. They eat certain kinds of food, but first and foremost, Lithuanians are a group because they speak a particular language, which few people outside Lithuania understand. The universal known as ethnicity is based primarily on language. The universal Lithuanian, to give just one example, is more like sex than redhead, which is real but insignificant, or deplorable, which is totally a category of one person's mind. Lithuania refers to a language which is a significant category of reality because it is the basis of ethnic identity and rational discourse among that particular group of people. There are 76 different ethnic groups in Tanzania, and all of them are indistinguishable when it comes to race, as that term is currently understood. The universal known as Kikuyu has a content that is both objective and significant because language plays a significant role in transmitting the values which determine behavior. The universals known as black or white, on the other hand, while based on the objective realities we have already discussed, have no significance or meaningful content because racial differences have no effect on behavior or identity other than what gets projected on them as categories of the mind. Categories of the mind can become universals which determine behavior. I once wrote an article on motorcycle culture in America after visiting the famous biker rally in Sturgis, South Dakota. At the high point of that festival, I was told, someone yelled, hey, asshole, and everybody turned around. Is asshole a universal based on a category of nature or a category of the mind? Well, it's both. It's a part of human body and a category of the mind which gets used as an insult. Why do I bring this up? I'm saying that if you identify as white, you were like the biker who turned around at the biker rally when someone yelled, hey, asshole. Because like asshole, white is a derogatory term which allows those in power to deprive those who identify as white of their rights. In the wake of what happened in Charlottesville, it is clear that white is not only a category of the mind, it is also a clearly derogatory term somewhere between deplorable and asshole. Anyone who adopts the term is internalizing the commands of his oppressors and asking for trouble. Compare what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia with what happened in Richmond more recently in the same state. There, the universal was gun owner. And because of that, no one went to jail in spite of the fact that many of the same people probably showed up at both rallies. The difference lies in the universals which got applied to them. Gun owner is a universal which is based on a category of nature which entails rights still guaranteed by the Constitution. White is a universal which has some insignificant with reality if we're talking about skin color, shape of nose, etc., but that universal has become a category of the mind or a fiction which now gets applied with a political purpose in mind. White people, unlike gun owners, have been deprived of their right to free speech and their right to assemble. Charlottesville is proof of that. This leads me to my conclusion, race is a category of the mind which gets weaponized for political purposes. Thank you. All right. Um, that brings us to the second 
segment, which is the the response or reply segment. So Jared Taylor has 10 minutes to reply to Dr. Jones's opening statement. Uh, all right. Uh, very good. Uh, Dr. Jones made a distinction between the ethnic and the physical, the ethnic and the race. He says ethnicity is real, whereas race is trivial. And he made several arguments in favor of this. One was that Europeans, until they ever met people who were not of the same race, didn't realize they were white. Well, how could they possibly have realized they were white? This was a physical reality that had never come into contact with the physical reality of someone of a different race. He also pointed out that a Lithuanian, for example, Lithuanian is a real identity, unlike race, because it has to do with language, culture, religion. The fact is, if a Lithuanian moves to Germany or if a Lithuanian moves to the United States and ceases to speak Lithuanian, he may even adopt a different religion. What he becomes is white because yes, there are ethnic differences among white, but biology remains the same. This is something that we carry with us no matter what language we speak, no matter what religion we would profess. Um, Mr. Jones has also said that this is something, race is something that has been imposed upon us by people who wish to manipulate us. On the contrary, race is something that every human being notices and marvels at. Every time someone of a different race for the first time meets a someone of a different race. It is an astonishing thing. When I was traveling in Africa in the 1970s, I went to places where very few white people had ever showed up. And one of the things that adults would do, and they got a great joy out of this, would bring a toddler, a two-year-old or three-year-old up and push him in my direction. They were so astonished at my appearance my strange blue eyes and my funny color, that they would scream in fear. These people were not reacting to some category that had been imposed upon them by people who wished to exploit us. They had just never seen someone who looked like me. They were astonished by it. Mr. Jones has also tried to emphasize the difference between categories of mind and categories of reality. I believe he has put the argument entirely on its head. Race, as I have already demonstrated, is a biological reality that is utterly irrefutable. And then to turn around and say, oh, it's nothing more than a few trivial physical differences. That is imposing a category of mind on a reality and perverting that reality. Mr. Jones has also argued that the meaning of the word race has changed over time. So what? Biological terms change over time. The fact that race can mean the human race or the German race. In different times, it means different things. But we know exactly what it means today. And that's why, as I said, a Lithuanian who comes to America and who loses his language and religion retains his race because it is something real. Uh, Mr. Jones has also said that the virtues and the vices of the different races are completely imaginary. All of the research that we have done heretofore counteracts that view. Asians, East Asians, wherever you find them, 
have low illegitimacy rates, low crime rates, high IQ scores, despite the protest that IQ tests were invented by white people. The race, their racial identity, their racial biology is something that's inextricably tied up with their behavior, what you could call a virtue. Likewise, West Africans are the world's champion sprinters. East Africans are the world's champion long distance runners. To say that this is some kind of illusion, that these things are not real, is something that surprises me very much. Again, it is an attempt to imply, to impose a category of mind on a category that is in fact real. And Mr. Jones says that somehow these physical differences, and as I pointed out in that first illustration of the white man, the pygmy, these remarkable physical differences, he says, have been magically transformed. Well, they've been magically transformed, not just in the minds of these toddlers who are horrified to see me a white person. They've not been magically transformed merely in the unthinking reactions of the microbes that live in our mouths. They are magically transformed in absolutely every living human being. Uh, I would go on and make a point about the importance of differences between human groups. I believe that uh, Mr. Jones finds that Christianity is the important element of what made white people and their culture great. He has argued that were it not for a thousand years of Christianity, the Germans would still be savages. Well, Christianity was first introduced in Germany in 300 AD. Country X, which we will call it, it, was, it had Christianity declared the state religion in 330 AD, so approximately the same period of time. Germany is 66% of the population identifies as Christian today. Country X, 63% of the population identifies as Christian. Well, some of you may be surprised to know that country X is Ethiopian. So the Ethiopians have been Christian for just as long as the Germans. And yet to say that Christianity has turned Ethiopians into a remarkable people the way it civilized the Germans would, I believe, completely overlook the reality of race and the fact of racial differences, not just in physical appearance, but also in temperament. Do not forget that the racial differences that we see around us, they are the product of all of these local variations that develop among species and subspecies. And races and subspecies, if left long enough to evolve independently, they become separate species. And one can say with great confidence that if the peoples of the world had been left to evolve separately, if they'd continued to be separate, to continue to have independent breeding populations, they would eventually become species that could not even breed amongst themselves. So the idea that somehow the temperament and the behavior of these groups is different, why is it, if that is the case, that black people, wherever you find them, they have consistent patterns of weak family structure, inability to defer gratification, high crime rates, low IQ, all kinds of social pathologies that you find wherever you find them. This is not someone imposing some kind of invidious category upon black people. This is the way, like it or not, 
that they have evolved to become. And to say that this is somehow imposing a category of mind on a category of reality. Again, I would say that is the opposite. This is a category of reality opposing itself on what we see around us. And it is a false imposition of the category of the mind to say that this is some kind of optical illusion or fiction. Do I have any more time? Uh, I'm not timing myself on this occasion. No, I, I, I sort of uh, I had to keep an eye on the chat as well, so I'm no. uh, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, but but yeah, you you can you can still go on. It's a little bit more. All right, uh, it is true. Yes. It is true that as uh, Mr. Jones says, white people were considered something that was unexceptional because they didn't know anyone who was any different. At the same time, it was natural to assume that whites and Christians were the same thing. There's a remarkable passage in Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, in which Jim Hawkins on the island, he stumbles across a castaway who's left, been left behind on the island. And what does the castaway say? He says, I'm poor Ben Gunn, I am. I haven't spoke with a Christian these three years. In Ben Gunn's eyes, a Christian and a white person is the same. Hilaire Belloc in 1920 wrote, Europe is the faith and the faith is Europe. Well, that was a hundred years ago. And that was completely ignoring the reality of Armenian Christians who became Christianity, the state religion, even before the Roman empire, ignoring the reality of Ethiopians who've been Christians for as long as Germans. And it ignores the fact that Christianity is now an increasingly non-white religion. To say that Europe, has been influenced and influenced profoundly by Christianity. I would agree, the art, the architecture, and so much of the way Europe has taken shape. All of this is deeply, deeply, intimately involved with Christianity. But even without Christianity, we would have developed a remarkable civilization, one certainly not found in Ethiopia or in any part of Africa. Likewise, if you look at the achievements of the Greeks, the achievements of the Romans. They were not Christians, but we find our roots as much in Greece and Rome as we do in Christianity. And so, yes, Europe in 1920 was the faith, and in 1920, the faith was Europe. But this no longer is something that characterizes us. We would have been white, we would have been European, we would have been the creators of a magnificent, of a magnificent civilization with Christianity, or without Christianity. Again, if we're talking about characteristics of mind, categories of mind, the category of reality is the one that is based in biology. It's the one that we are left with when we are stripped completely of any kind of ethnicity, whether it be language, whether it be religion, whether it be the way we're raised, whatever happens, we remain Europeans. And that is why wherever you find Europeans, you find a kindred civilization. It is a civilization that is colored by Christianity, but I don't for a moment believe that it's one that is dependent on Christianity. And even as Christianity wanes throughout the Western world, those characteristics that white people bring with them, wherever they go in the world, they remain. And the idea that race is some kind of fiction, I believe that this is exceedingly dangerous because it can lead to the view that if white people are replaced in their homelands, they're being replaced essentially by themselves. 
So it makes no difference. If the United States becomes majority black, it makes no difference. If Italy becomes majority pygmy or Eskimo, it makes no difference because race is a fiction. I would argue, and I believe that our intuitive understanding of the way the world works tells us that if those changes happen, those nations will cease to exist in any realistic sense. They will not be part of the West. They will not be part of Western civilization. And by letting those who are unlike ourselves, not just biologically, but temperamentally, physically, in their propensities for different forms of action, different diseases, we risk the greatest challenge that we as Westerners have ever felt in the history of Western man. All right, um, Dr. Jones, your turn to respond. If you're ready, Dr. Jones. Yeah, yeah. You have 10 minutes to respond if you like. Okay. Like feminists in general, and Hillary Clinton in particular, race theorists like Mr. Taylor base their arguments on sleight of hand, which switches in a deliberately deceptive manner from categories of reality to categories of the mind based on an equivocal use of the same word. Jared Taylor demonstrated this intellectual sleight of hand at the Scanza Forum in Copenhagen in 2018 by marshalling facts like, the illegitimacy rate among blacks in the United States is 77%. In some areas in the United States, marriage has simply disappeared in black communities, whereas illegitimacy rate among whites is 30%. After citing these remarkable differences, Taylor then asked in disingenuously, how do we account for them? And then mockingly answering his own question, he was going to say the only explanation must be white racism. Race theorists believe in things like science and IQ, but they never cite studies that contradict the foregone conclusion that race is the fundamental social reality and the ultimate cause of social pathology. On IQ, it has been noted that the remarkable increase in average IQ over generational time, known as the Flynn effect, there are very large increases, demonstrative massive population environmentally caused changes in IQ. Like adoption, the Flynn effect remains a powerful rebuttal of the idea that IQ can be judged by environmental factors. Studies not cited by Taylor indicate that family and faith are more important than race in determining intelligence. When an African-American or Latino student was a person of faith and came from a two-biological parent family, the achievement gap totally disappeared, even when adjusting for socioeconomic status. The same study goes on to say that when a Caucasian comes from a single parent of a blended family structure, he or she loses the advantage of being white. Flynn himself has noted the following when it comes to environmental and genetic factors when discussing interracial adoption. What was different here? These half black kids that were being raised in Germany were not being raised in a black subculture. They were just being raised by random women throughout Germany with no black subculture at all. There were subtle differences between the black and white subcultures that influenced the kids' attitudes at problem solving that had nothing to do with black and white genes. They had to do with the different kind of preschool experiences of kids in black and white subcultures. White subculture places much more emphasis on problem solving than black subculture. The present IQ gap, there is much empirical evidence that the basis of the gap is environmental 
even today, you'd have to be mad to think that the blank, uh, black and white environment for cognition is equivalent. Considering studies like this, Taylor's facts raise more questions than they answer. Did the number of out-of-wedlock births in the black community always stand at 77%? The same could be asked of white illegitimacy, the white illegitimacy rate. Was it always 30%? Was the ratio of black to white illegitimacy always roughly two to one? By bringing up the issue of black illegitimacy, Taylor invokes deliberately or not the Moynihan Report, named after then Undersecretary of Transportation, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who reported in 1963 that black illegitimacy had re reached epidemic proportions because 20% of all black children were born out of wedlock. If we look at the percentages over time, the differences become even more striking. According to a report from the Brookings Institute in 1965, 24% of black infants and 3.1% of white infants were born to single mothers. By 1990, the rates had risen to 64% for black infants, 18% for whites. This means, of course, that white illegitimacy is now higher than black illegitimacy was then. What does that tell us about race? The answer is it tells us nothing. Race has nothing to do with this, but it does tell us a lot about cultural change. Upon closer examination, the real question would seem to be not so much why are black illegitimacy rates three times what they were in 1965, but why did white illegitimacy rates increase tenfold over the same period of time? How, did it have to, how would that be based on race? How is it possible? In 1965, black illegitimacy was eight times higher than white rates. Now it's only double white rates. If race is the main factor in producing, predicting illegitimacy, why do we now have a situation in which whites now bear more illegitimate children than blacks did then? Taylor gives no indication that race has changed over this period of time, but something has changed. Well, what changed? The answer to that question is that the culture has changed. And 1965 was a crucial year in this regard. In the spring of that year, the Supreme Court handed down its Con Griswold versus Connecticut decision striking down Comstock era laws banning the sale of contraceptives. At around the same time, Hollywood broke the production code, which, also, which prohibited nudity, blasphemy, and obscenity by releasing its Holocaust porn film, The Pawnbroker. Race played no role whatsoever in either of those important events. But ethnicity did, especially if we define ethnicity in America according to the triple melting pot theory, which specifies that after three generations, religion becomes the source of ethnic identity in America. America is made up of three ethnic groups based on three religions, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. Estelle Griswold was the extremely white wife of a Yale professor. Birth control was a Protestant crusade, which got its initial funding from the equally white Rockefeller family. Hollywood was a Jewish creation from its inception, as was pornography. The Catholics fought both groups on these issues. Race played no role in that conflict, and if race is superimposed on that conflict in its, as its ultimate explicator, then what happened then remains forever mysterious. The Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, which led to skyrocketing illegitimacy rates among both black and white populations, took place totally within the purview of the triple melting pot, which specified that religion, not race, is the matrix of cultural conflict in America.
Race, in other words, does not explain the statistics Taylor himself cites. By using race as a criterion of social pathology, Taylor, in fact, provides cover for the real perpetrators of cultural decay. After talking about illegitimacy, Taylor then switches gears and complains about, quote, fierce private limitations on what we can say, which have been imposed on internet platforms, claiming that Google, Facebook, and Twitter are censoring our ideas. When in fact, the main actor in internet censorship, and in fact, the inventor of the term hate speech, which gets used to justify censorship, is the Anti-Defamation League, which is a Jewish organization. Which leads me to my first question. Are Jews white? This question has already been answered for us by another Jewish organization, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which he prays on Mr. Taylor's organization, the American Renaissance. I pointed this out in Culture Wars in 2007 in an article describing how both organizations manipulated race to cover up the real actors in America's ongoing saga of cultural tribal warfare. The Southern Poverty Law Center is a Jewish deformation operation similar to the ADL, which demonized John Sharp as a racist anti-Semite because he attended one of Jared Taylor's American Renaissance conferences. Yet if we log on to the SPLC website and type American Renaissance into their search engine, we find that the SPLC has good things to say about that organization. In fact, a quick search of the SPLC website informs us that the American Renaissance president, Jared Taylor, is, quote, an opponent of anti-Semitism. Sean Mercer, the man in charge of the American Renaissance's web discussion group, we are told, deletes most postings excoriating the Jews. This only confirms what we have learned from other sources. In an obit on obituary on Sam Francis, which appeared in the American Conservative, we were told that Jared Taylor wanted to do for white nationalism what William F. Buckley did for conservatism. And what was that? Well, to subvert it for the benefit of Jewish interest. One of the entries at the SPLC website, SPLC website claims that it is well known that the American Renaissance does not allow anti-Semitism. It is uptown, 100% clean white nationalism. Call it a first step if you like, but it is a very important and a very important first step. And Jared Taylor has had success. So congratulations, Jared, for making Jews fit for polite company. This transformation, however, has serious consequences for anyone involved in fighting the culture wars. As soon as Jews become white, they become invisible. And as soon as the Jews become invisible, we run into serious difficulties in providing a convincing explanation for any of the pathologies that have afflicted the West for over 50 years now, from unlimited weaponized immigration to pornography to abortion to wars in the Middle East. In one of his YouTube videos, Taylor says, if we do nothing, we will be shoved aside by people who hate us for what we have built and despise us for letting them take it away from us. Who are these people who hate us for what we have built? Who gave us pornography, gay marriage, endless wars in the Middle East, and weaponized migration in both America in the 60s and in Europe as we now speak? Was it the nameless sharecroppers from Mississippi or South Carolina, or was it white people? like John J. McCloy of the Ford Foundation, who used black ministers like Leon Sullivan to engage in the ethnic cleansing of Catholic parishes in Philadelphia. 
Was it nameless boat people from Libya or was it white people like Barbara Lerner Specter who defended the weaponized migration sweeping over countries like Germany and Sweden by saying Europe must become multicultural in order to survive, to survive. As the Jews will be at the forefront of that huge transformation, the Jews will be resented for their leading role. Barbara Lerner Specter is not the only Jew expressing animus toward traditional European cultures. Johns Hopkins professor Yasha Monk. Dr. Jones, I, I think we've gone over the time a little bit. So if we can. Uh... I, have, I just have a little bit more to say. Jared took a All little right. extra time. I All took right. less time in my first statement. I was under 20 okay. minutes. Just let me finish. Sure. Johns Hopkins professor Yasha Monk has stated that Jews are currently involved in carrying on a unique experiment whereby we are transforming a mono-ethnic democracy into a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. In an interview on Westdeutsche Rundfunk's Presse Club, Monk stated that the, the state must punish anyone who out of hate opposes the creation of a multi-ethnic society. Clearly, something is wrong here. On the eve of Ireland's citizenship referendum in 2007, the Israeli academic Ronan Lenton said an interrogation of how the Irish nation can become other than white Christian and settled by privileging the voices of the racialized and subverting state migration, but also integration policies. Those who are unfamiliar with the situation in the United States can view Mr. Greenblatt, head of the ADL, explaining on YouTube why more internet necessary, internet censorship is necessary. Is Mr. Greenblatt white? Is Barbara Lander Specter white? If the answer is yes, then the current situation becomes completely incomprehensible because the main promoters of weaponized immigration in Europe and censorship on the internet are suddenly on the same team as the people they are trying to censor and destroy. And that doesn't make any sense. Clearly something is wrong here, and the problem lies with Jared Taylor's mendacious use of the word race. Race, as Taylor puts it, is a category of mind very similar to Hillary Clinton's use of deplorable. It weaponizes categories of nature for political effect. This becomes obvious in his use of the term white, which includes Jews, but excludes people like Kevin McDonald, who has never been invited to an American Renaissance conference because he criticizes Jews. The same is true of David Duke, whose attempt to get elected governor of the state of Louisiana was derailed by Taylor's wife, Evelyn Rich. Taylor preaches racial solidarity, but he practices the exact opposite, acting as a commissar for Jewish interest and making sure that the term white conforms not to categories of nature, but the categories of Jared Taylor's mind. Once the Jew becomes white, he becomes one of us, which means that he becomes invisible and free to wage war on the cultures of the West by promoting culture-destroying phenomena like abortion, gay marriage, usury, and pornography. By making Jews white, Taylor simultaneously makes white Jews, turning them into unwitting accomplishments, accomplices in the destruction of their own culture and their own lives, as happened at Charlottesville. Anyone who claims that Jews are white is the enemy of the white people he claims to lead, like the Mahdi who inspired thousands of his followers to charge Kitchener's Maxim guns, raising scimitars astride their camels at the Battle of Omdurman, Racial apologists like Jared Taylor inspired Richard Spencer to hand out spears to the white boys and point them in the direction of the legal machine gun nest in Charlottesville, where they all got mowed down. 
by a self-described chubby lesbian kite named Roberta Kaplan. Is Roberta Kaplan white, Jared? Is Jennifer Rubin white, Jared? If so, why did she just tweet? No, don't don't use those kinds of slurs on the stream because you'll harm my channel. What? Are there are no slurs here. I'm asking a question. If Jews are white, why does Jennifer Rubin feel the need to prevent minority white rule? I think I know the answer to that question. If Jews are white, then whites are Jews. Since Jews have power and whites do not, this means that the whites who follow Taylor's understanding of race end up internalizing the commands of their oppressors and being controlled by the very people they need to oppose. Jared knows this, but do you? Do you turn around when someone yells, hey, asshole, are you willing to ruin your life for a category mistake? Thank you. All right. Mr. Taylor. All right. Now I, I gather I have five minutes. Uh, is that what it is? Yes, a final statement, and then I think we'll open up to a freer uh, conversation and taking questions from the audience as well. All right. Okay, I've set the timer this time. I don't wish to go over. Uh, first of all, the idea that studies show that race and IQ are some sort of myth. Adoption, for example. There's a famous uh, Minneapolis study of black and uh, mulatto children adopted into white households. Initially, the results were favorable. The adopted children had relatively high IQs. By the time they got to be age 18, their IQs had subsided to uh, essentially the average for blacks in Minnesota and uh, mixed race people in uh, Minnesota. The idea that the Flynn effect somehow negates the fact of racial differences in IQ is silly because the Flynn effect has affected absolutely everyone. It probably has more to do with nutrition than anything else, although the Flynn effect is still not well understood. And the racial IQ gap between blacks and whites has remained unchanged despite the Flynn effect. Yes, illegitimacy rates have changed for whites as well as for blacks, but the point is there is a very substantial difference that remains, and you find that difference wherever you find blacks living in multiracial societies. Furthermore, the idea that the only real divisions in American society are Protestant, Catholic, and Jew, for heaven's sake, when there are race riots in prisons, there are race riots. When there are divisions in society, when people are marching in the streets, is it Catholics opposing the Protestants or Protestants and Catholics getting together to oppose the Jews? No, the real divisions in American society are clearly racial. And this is something that is a biological and natural phenomenon because it exists independently of what we think. Now, the question of this debate was whether race is a legitimate category or is it a fiction? Uh, the, the question here is not, are Jews white? And what is the legitimate role of Jews in any Western society? Those are perfectly good questions to ask. I have never ever suggested that those questions should not be raised. I just am one who believes that there are some Jews, European Jews, those who are heavily European, who can, in fact, be patriotic men and women of the West. I think we make a terrible mistake when we assume that just because the ADL and the SPLC, they reflect an aspect of Jewish thinking that is clearly uh, one that wishes to delegitimize any kind of racial thinking, racial consciousness among whites. That means that all Jews are always our enemies. 
No, I have said many times that the aggregate effect of Jewish thinking on the United States has been one that has tended to make, to undermine any kind of healthy racial consciousness. In my mind, however, that does not mean that all, all Jews are our enemies, and I believe that some Jews can be accepted, as I said, as men of the West. The idea that I had somehow inspired Richard Spencer by my toadying to Jews to somehow uh, use his uh, white myrmidons and make them charge into the Maxim guns of organized Jewry. Uh, this to me is uh, a quite preposterous idea. I don't know where that comes from. Also, the idea that family and faith determine intelligence. Uh, I hope that uh, uh, Dr. Jones will send me a citation to the study that found that as soon as you controlled for a few things, race drops away and becomes not nothing, and that with the right Christian household and the right uh, tuning here and there, racial differences disappeared. I don't believe that that's possible, and I don't think it ever will be possible, certainly unless there are some kind of remarkable genetic changes. And I would also point out that uh, Mr. Flynn, Professor Flynn, whom Dr. Jones cited as one who suggests that race has no effect at all on intelligence. He has also said that it is entirely possible that studies of genetics will demonstrate that there could be racial differences in the distribution of the genes associated with IQ. He has also said, if academics have their way, these studies will never take place. Flynn was not afraid of the truth. He analyzed the facts and he drew a certain conclusion. He never took the view that Dr. Jones appears to take that somehow those who disagree with him are motivated by bad faith. He was a scientist and he was not a polemicist. He was one who was always open to the idea that Richard Jensen and people like Philippe Rushton were correct in their analysis. I believe that as the science of genes progresses, it is inevitable. I would, make, I would bet the next 20 mortgage payments that the genes associated with differences in temperament, differences in intelligence will not be found to be distributed equally among all the different racial groups. And I see I've come to the end of my five minutes, so I do not, do not wish to go over time. All right. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Jones. The final five minutes, and please do watch your language. I, I don't want you to yeah. use any words right. that can harm my channel. Thank you. Okay. Now, I have to make a statement here. Uh, the term uh, chubby lesbian kike is the way Roberta Kaplan characterizes herself. Now, she knows that if she can say that, Okay, and she can say that, and everybody will laugh. Okay, but if you say it, uh, you will be banned from the internet. This is the type of trap that has been set for Precisely, all of us yes. here. It's the it's exactly the type of trap that has been set. If I say uh, that the Jews uh, are behind gay marriage, okay, I can get banned from the internet. Uh, but if I say uh, even if I say, uh, this was in Tacoon Magazine, this was Amy Dean bragging about the fact that the Jews are behind gay marriage, okay? Even if I say that, I'm in danger, okay? Now, this, this is an intolerable situation here that we, are all, we have all been put into. 
This is the war that is going on right now uh, before our eyes, and it's got nothing to do with race. It has to do with the difference between Jews and non-Jews in this culture. Now, if you want to talk about race, I'm not, I'm, look, I've already been through this before. There are definite biological characteristics. I never denied that. Okay. You can also say that it is a, a, a fundamental category of uh, current strife at this moment. It is. Of course it is. Race is being mobilized by a certain group of people. But that's the pri precisely the point that I'm trying to make here. Who is the group of people that are mobilizing this racial conflict? Who gave Black Lives Matter $33 million? It was George Soros. Who was behind the whole civil? Who, who, when did this? Let's go back to the, the triple melting pot. Okay. Let's go back to when that came into common parlance. It was 1954. Okay. Yes. The the triple melting pot probably needs to be updated. But what else happened in 1954? 1954 was a Supreme Court decision, Brown versus school board, which established race as a fundamental category of human, uh, of uh, existence in the United States of America. Does that mean that race is a category of reality? No. It was a category of the mind that got imposed on us to deliberately distract us from the ethnic reality of life in America as, uh, as symbolized by the, tri uh, the triple melting pot, which also came out in that era, the same year. That was when the book uh, Catholic Protestant Jew came out. You had the two competing paradigms at that point because the government through its, uh, through its support through its might behind race, race has been in forever eclipsing this fundamental reality of life. I'm saying if you stick with race as your example, you're not going to understand what's going on. Not right now, not ever. You'll never understand that race can be weaponized, that it is being weaponized, and that the Jews are the people behind the weaponization. They were behind Brown versus School Board. They were behind Black Lives Matter. And if you're running interference for them by saying you're white, you will never win this battle. All right. Uh, now I would like to open up to... Uh an open discussion. Uh, so, so gentlemen, is there if there is anything uh, you haven't said yet that you want to get out there uh, before we take questions from the audience? Now's your uh, well, opportunity. Uh, Now's your chance. Uh, yes, I Jared. would just react in a few seconds to uh, uh, Dr. Jones' characterization of Brown versus Board of Education. The idea that that Supreme Court ruling somehow imposed race on the United States is very difficult to understand. Race existed already. That's because that's why there were segregated schools. That's why there had been all of these laws that we're now supposed to oppose. The Supreme Court simply recognized race, but then tried to pretend that race doesn't matter. And uh, that's a very, very different thing. That is what the current project in the, in the United States is, to try to come up with this idea that race doesn't matter. I can almost get the impression that uh, Dr. Jones would agree with me if I were simply to say, well, Jews aren't white then we'd be all happy, happy, and agree on practically everything. But uh, as far as uh, Brown is concerned, I believe he's entirely wrong. Uh, Brown versus school board imposed the category of race as a part of the rule of law. 
Now it becomes part of the rule of law. If this idea of racial integration is now become part of the law of the United States of America, it was enforced by federal troops. Okay, so that's what I mean by the t- America taking this direction. Brown versus School Board is based on Jewish science. Okay. That's what Murray Friedman said in his book about what happened, about the collapse of the Black Jewish Alliance. That is the classic example of what I'm talking about, about Jews manipulating the racial situation to achieve the goal of basically dividing and polarizing America and destroying any type of unity that we had, cultural unity. All right. Uh, Any further points uh, from either of you, gentlemen? Let's, Let's hear from the audience, All right. Well, we have a tremendous uh, number of super chats, so I think it's probably a good idea, yes, that we uh, go through them. Let me just scroll back and start from the beginning. Okay. I think this is, in fact, the first one. Uh, Bear with me, folks. Okay, this is the first one for this particular live stream. Uh, Kowlen Court uh, sends 10 US dollars, says, if the question were reframed, is the white race an important reality or a fiction, would that change your position or your answer? Um, I guess this is well i guess this can be directed at both of you so if if the question wasn't about race in general but the white race in particular uh let's start with you jared Uh, would would that have changed anything for you no Uh, i think that question is clearly directed to dr jones obviously obviously i think the white race is a vastly important reality all races are important realities but the white race because it's my race is of particular interest to me uh, Dr. Jones, uh, would, would if the question was specifically about the white race rather than race as a general concept, uh, would that have changed anything? No, no, because there is no such thing as a white race without a black race. You can't have one without the other. So no, it wouldn't have right. changed my changed my point my point of view. Right. Uh, well, before we proceed with the questions from the audience, I have one question for each of you and. Uh, I'll uh, I'll be so rude as to actually ask them uh, first before we go to all the questions from the audience. And uh, my, my first question is directed to uh, Jared, and it's about what what Kevin McDonald calls uh, implicit and explicit processing in the brain. Um, he talks about implicit whiteness, for example, when people go to um, when people go to concerts, they go to concerts that other white people go to or move to a neighborhood, and, and they're sort of fooling themselves. But our, our implicit processing in the brain can be over, or the, the, that our explicit or higher order function can override our thinking. And so we can convince our, ourselves that I'm not racist, but still I want to just associate with white people on an implicit level. Uh, obviously, this is... Uh, this is going on to a large extent in our society that we ignore our race. And the most common objection that I get when I talk to people is that they don't outright deny that race exists or, for example, that the, the 
white race is in danger of going extinct. They just say that they don't care because their explicit processing, as Kevin probably would uh, say, uh, they ignore it. They don't identify with that, so they don't care. What What do you say to people who say that maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't, but but I don't care if, if the white race is, is threatened well, because, yeah. Well, first of all, uh, this concept of implicit uh, whiteness, it's by no means sufficient. Yes, uh, right. white people live in certain neighborhoods. They go to classical music concerts. They go to farmers markets. They do things that are overwhelmingly white. But unless they do this explicitly, unless they're prepared to say, yes, this is our society and it must bear our stamp, they're doing nothing. They're running away. And whenever you ask white people, well, can you name a majority non-white neighborhood you'd like to live in? Most of them just come up stumped. So there is a preposterous hypocrisy in how whites behave as opposed to what they profess to believe. Yes, race is clearly important to them, but until they're prepared to say, yes, it is important to me and I'm prepared to do something about it, then all this implicit whiteness, as far as I'm concerned, scarcely matters. Now, when you really, really meet someone who says, no, I don't care if white people go extinct, I don't know if anyone genuinely believes that. I think they feel compelled by a kind of logic to say that. Because if you point out that the trends that we are seeing here in the United States, immigration, intermarriage, the constant promotion of mixed marriage, then what is the ultimate outcome? Uh, I got into a debate with Professor Wilfred Riley of Eastern Kentucky State University, in which he came right out and said, uh, 200 years from now, there won't be any white people around, and that's great. Well, if that's what he thinks, and he's uh, a very light-skinned black guy, if that's what he thinks, I can't convince him otherwise. But I think most white people in their bones think that would be an absolutely horrible outcome. And as a consequence, the more often people tell them, yeah, this is what lies ahead if we do nothing, extinction of your biological group. I think that will motivate white people. If it doesn't, then we will go extinct. Right. Uh, my question to you, Dr. Jones, um, while I uh, do think that race exists, I do agree with your point about Christianity uh, or your, your stance on Christianity because I do think that there is a certain friction, there is a certain incompatibility between Christian thinking and racial tribal thinking, uh, which in my view basically boils down to a form of ancestor worship. You worship your group that is a very powerful, strong, central point for your identity and your existence. And, and I often get objections uh, from Christians who say that, no, Christians can definitely uh, care about race, and they bring up historical examples or um, a certain individual of a, a Christian who cares about race. But I don't think that's really relevant. What I want to know is the idea of Christianity and the world view of Christianity, because as I see it, there are two ways of looking at this. Either we identify with what we are, and that's things that we don't choose, is our ancestry, our blood, our genetics, our biology, or we can identify with what something that we choose, that we can choose to accept a belief or reject a belief, and that identifies uh, who we are. And I think that this has, has uh, led to certain... Uh, conflicts of interests or friction between these worldviews. And, and one uh, very clear example is um, 
1937 when uh, the Catholic Church condemned National Socialist Germany for being too tribal or uh, they called them, even used the term pagan because of the sort of ancestral worship, which I, I think is correct. Uh, so do you agree that there is an inevitable friction or um, conflict between these worldviews in which one is race is non-negotiable and the other is more focused on uh, where the higher order is the things that you accept or reject uh, consciously uh, as a belief well, first of all the the gospel tells christians to go out and preach to all nations now, what do they mean by nations they mean ethnic groups that's what the word nation means race as a concept didn't exist. It simply did not exist at this point. It didn't exist as, as we're debating it now. It didn't exist until black people came in contact with white people. Okay. Before that, there was ethnicity. That's it. That's all there was. And that's, that ethnicity is perfectly compatible with Christianity. Christianity, uh, now, let me step back, take a step back here. I'm talking about the Catholic Church, okay, before the Protestant Reformation, okay? The Catholic Church always allowed ethnic differences, okay? It never tried to impose some type of uniform language, for example, on the people of Europe. Now, they did speak Latin, okay, as the official language of the church, because you needed a lingua franca in a country where some people spoke Hungarian. And you couldn't, they couldn't talk to anybody else. They needed a lingua franca, and Latin was that. But Latin allowed a kind of, what it allowed was unity in diversity. That's what the Catholic Church allowed. That was destroyed by Protestantism. It was Protestant Reformation that led to the rise of national churches like the one you belong to in Norway. Okay, so your identity was as a Lutheran, you're baptized as a Lutheran in Norway, and that gives you your identity. And that identity was sufficient as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it was a form of Christianity. I don't agree with it, but it was a form of Christianity. It gave you your identity. And then suddenly uh, a Protestantism evaporated uh, during our lifetimes here. And at that point, it initiated an identity crisis throughout Scandinavia and the countries that were uh, basically Protestant countries uh, like England, for example. And at that point, you saw the, why, the rise of white identity as the thing that flowed in to fill this vacuum. Now, if you get to, if you're talking about 1937 and the church's condemnation uh, in the document Mid Brennan de Zorga, it is using race uh, as a, a, a pseudo religion. That's what they were complaining about. Because, and, and the, the, the interesting thing about this is it wasn't German. Okay, the word race was originally printed in German text spelled R-A-C-E, and no German understood how to pronounce it because there's no such uh, combination of letters. So what they had to do was change it to Rasse, R-A-S-S-E, and then you could produce it, and that became it was simultaneous with the rise of Hitler. Why did Hitler feel obliged? First of all, where did he get the idea? He got it from America. He got it from Madison Grant, okay? And Madison Grant used to wave that letter around from Hitler, thanking him for giving him this idea of racial ideology. It was not German. The German word is folk, and folk means ethnic group. And why did Hitler feel the need to do this? Because he could not resolve the Protestant 
Reformation, which divided Germany into two mutually exclusive groups. Okay, that's why it happened. So all you're talking about here is the rise of this type of uh, consciousness to fill a vacuum that had been left behind when religion evaporated. That's the crisis in Scandinavia now. That's the crisis that that's the only reason we're talking about white people. Uh, I wish we had had this in Zagreb because then we could talk about the difference between Serbs and Croats. Race has nothing whatsoever to do with one of the most fundamental differences in European politics that is purely a religious difference. Yeah, but, but let me just give you one concrete example and then we'll move on to other questions. But uh, France, France is a traditionally Catholic country. France has a huge number of uh, North African or uh, Muslim immigrants. If we just, in a hypothetical example, if we could push a button and all those uh, black people and Africans and Muslims, they became Catholics and they spoke French perfectly. From a Catholic point of view, would there be any motive to throw them out of the country? No. Uh, or, or, or would no. they be... Right. No. no, it wouldn't. Because right. that would there would be, if you're talking about Catholics, it's a, it's a form of behavior that is fundamentally different from Islam. It has a it's a different culture, and they could become they could become Frenchmen without any problem. Now, people have already said this to me. Well, suppose some African from Tanzania goes to Poland, can he become a Pole if he learns the language? The answer is yes. Okay, that is exactly what could happen. I had this experience when I went in Germany, but that's that's okay. So we're both white guys. Okay, can let me ask you another question: Can a Jew become a Chinaman? Can a Jew become a Chinaman? Well, that's exactly what happened during the Cultural Revolution in China because Stanley Rittenberg, an American Jew from South Carolina, not only became a Chinaman, and how did he, he, by learning Chinese, he was a leader of the Cultural Revolution. So if you're going to ask me how race figured into that, it didn't figure into that at all. The crucial issue is language. Uh, may I make a comment here? Yes. Uh, the idea of an African becoming a Pole if he learns Polish and becomes Catholic seems quite preposterous to me. We've had blacks in the United States since 1619, as the New York Times never fails to remind us. They speak English. They are more professing Christians than they are whites in the United States. And yet the division between their behavior, their loyalty, their actions, all of these things seem to increase the more actual formal equality they have. So the idea of an Ugandan becoming a Pole seems to me to be vastly unlikely. Yeah, I, I did, some Polish guy wrote to me and he said when he went to school, there was a black girl there. And the black girl is there at, uh, at school and she's having lunch. And the Polish kid came over to her and she, he said, I didn't know uh, Negroes uh, ate sandwiches. And the black girl says, well, now you know. So it did happen. It did happen in Poland. And the second point here is, secondly, the United States is, I've, I've made this claim before, maybe people forgot it, but race has been weaponized as a category of the mind throughout the United States history. Of course it has. Who's denying that? Am I denying that there was racial conflict in the United States? Of course not. I am saying that it was weaponized by a certain group of people that no one's allowed to talk about. 
And you are convinced that if 5 million Ugandans move to Now, Poland, wait a minute. Now, wait yeah. a minute. You're changing the terms no, of the No, argument. I'm not. Now, I'm wait not. a minute. I am going to say there, I know what weaponized migration is because I lived through it no, in wait, my wait, lifetime. Wait, wait. In North, uh, I grew up in an, in an Irish neighborhood. There were no such thing as white neighborhoods in Philadelphia. They were ethnic neighborhoods. I grew up in an Irish neighborhood, and in 1954, the blacks crossed uh, Lehigh Avenue, and everyone left. I've talked about this in my book, uh, Slaughter of Cities. I called it what it was. It was ethnic cleansing. It was the use of black people as proxy warriors to destroy Catholic neighborhoods. So don't say that I haven't talked about it. Well, well Dr. Jones, let's uh, look my, at uh, Mr. Taylor answer the question. If you have one African girl living in Poland, if she does not conform and eat sandwiches, she's going to live a very, very lonely, virtually impossible life. It is once the number of Africans reaches a certain critical mass, and they will be an unabsorbable, an absolutely unabsorbable, indigestible minority. And what happened in your neighborhood, who is to say that the Catholics who moved out were somehow manipulated by a weaponized ideology. They moved out because they knew what black people would bring. They knew how their neighborhood would change. It's not as though somebody reached into their mind and said, look, those people don't, are they not the least bit different from you, but you better bugger off because we, we Jews are telling you to bugger off. No, they reacted to reality. The, I'd say that the, the black people were weaponized, not the white people. The black people were weaponized by uh, groups like the Ford Foundation and by groups, Jewish groups as well. Wait, okay. So, so now the point, the point, the, the point I'm trying to make yeah, here is, of yeah. course, there's a difference between one person and a horde of people. Now we've got two groups of people here in France. We have Muslims and we have blacks. Okay, they're both alien groups, and they both, in large numbers, will destroy uh, or can destroy the culture. They, uh, they can clog assimilation because there are simply too many of them. Exactly the same thing happened in the Roman Empire. You can have a couple of Goths crossing the Danube. Okay, we'll send them to Syria. They'll learn Latin. Everything's fine. When the entire Gothic nation crosses the Danube, it's only a matter of time before they take over and it becomes the Gothic kingdom. Of course that can happen. Okay, but they're two different things, and race is not the crucial factor there. <laughs> it right. seems to me race is the obvious factor, but we will have to disagree on that. Yes, let's uh, let's let uh, let's move uh, on to the yeah. to some of the questions here. here here's uh, one listener, Joao, who has sent many questions. I don't think we have time to read all of them, but uh, I want to thank you for sending. So many super chats, uh, very generous. Uh, let's just start with uh, a couple of them. Uh, this is obviously directed to Dr. Jones. Uh, he is making a claim that priests um, pushed Spaniards to race mix uh, in, in South America and, and thus created a mestizo population. Do you have any uh, such, any comments yes. on that, Dr. Jones? Preposterous preposterous that they can produce they can push people to do that type of thing what you have in the catholic colonization is you have uh interracial marriage that's absolutely true you have the mestizo culture in mexico and more importantly you have the uh quebec the culture in uh, quebec quebecois culture which the indians intermarried with the catholics let me give you a statement from the state of michigan 
Okay. You go to Fort Michi Millie Mackinac. Okay. And there is a history of uh, New France. And it basically starts off with the priest. And he's standing there and he's marrying the voyageur, the guy who paddled the canoe, and an Indian maiden. Okay. That's the culture. There was no artificial race barrier in Catholic cultures. It didn't exist. And so there was racial mixing because their common identity was Catholic. Okay. At this point, next slide, uh, the English win the war and they take over the, the fort. And now uh, they bring a Jew with them and the Jew is in charge of the store and the Jew uh, starts cheating the Indians. Uh, the Indians are outside playing. They kick a ball over. They ask to come in and they come in and they slaughter everyone in the fort and they redeclare that they are uh, loyal to the king of France and not the king of England. This was the difference between English, between Protestant colonization of the Americas and the Catholic colonization of Americas. There was a definite difference, okay? When the French, when the English got handed Nova Scotia, they came and they told the people they wouldn't speak French, they wouldn't speak Micmac, they spoke, told them in English that they had to become Presbyterians. The people said, no, we're already Christians. So they said uh, when they didn't go along with them, they deported them to Louisiana. And then when that didn't work, they scalped them. They put bounties on scalps. This is the difference between Catholic, which gives you a real identity, and Protestant, these national churches, which ended up being fronts for uh, white or whatever you want to call uh, uh, British imperialism. Right. Let, let's just try yeah. to keep these uh, comments rather rather short because we have many questions. Uh, Mr. Taylor, yes. If, uh, if, if I might uh, ask a brief question of uh, uh, Dr. Jones. If it is Jews who weaponized race and who injected it as this malevolent force into American and world society, why is it that Jews who are behind uh, are the ones who are most active at making us believe that race doesn't matter. If you were to move to the shared screen, uh, you could see that uh, beginning with Franz Boas and then Richard Lewontin, who is, uh, died recently, Stephen Jay Gould, Stephen Rose, Ashley Montague, better known as, uh, well, not so well known as Israel Ehrenberg. All of these people are Jews. So today it seems to me that uh, Dr. Jones' allies are Jews in terms of trying to make race an insignificant thing. They are far from weaponizing it. They are making, wanting to make it count for nothing. It depends on the period you're talking about. It's, Ooh, it's, okay. It, 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 it changes over a period of time. So they, uh, you could say, okay, Franz Boas, yeah, right. That's they were anti by the anti biological people at that time. With Margaret Mead, she was his protege. It was all environment, okay, and that was against the biological people, okay. And so they uh, used and used environmentalism as a way of weaponizing race. It's very simple. Well, that's, well, that's, that's what Brown versus School Board is. It's all environmental sociology weaponizing race, using race and saying all we have to do is change the environment and everything will be fine. And so we have to use these racial categories. Then you go to critical race theory and then it turns out that it's, it's, it's different now. But it just but, changed over periods of time. It just, they use it, they weaponize it in one way and then they weaponize it in another. Well, wait, how are they weaponizing race? They're clearly your allies. If you say race is an unimportant fiction, that's now exactly what the forefront of Jewish intellectuals are now saying. 
Exactly yeah, that's that's Noel, that's Noel Ignatiev, and he's not no. the same as Franz Boas. No, you're, it's completely different. They are weaponizing. They're saying race is not important, okay? Mm -hmm. At the time of Brown versus School Board, is environment's important, and so we're going to change the environment based on racial categories. So they're weaponizing race. But now they're de-weaponizing? Well, in any case, no, they're I, I don't think going to, no, they're, they're weaponizing, weaponizing in a different way. Weaponizing in a different way, yeah, of course. <laughs> all right. Race doesn't exist, but we're going to use it as a nuclear weapon. No, well, I, anyway. I, first of all, did I say that Uncle Tom's Cabin does not exist? I said it's a fiction. Of course it exists. It exists as a category of the mind, which then can be weaponized. That's the whole point I'm trying to make here. Okay. Uh, it, 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 it eludes me, but let's hope it does not elude the audience. Uh, but Dr. Jones, the the, the entire left-wing establishment is preoccupied with deconstructing race and saying that uh, race doesn't exist and race is not important. B would you acknowledge that? No, they're saying the exact opposite. They're saying race is very important. Well, it depends on when you're, again, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the civil rights movement in 1960 or are you talking about critical race theory right now? Critical race no, theory no, is okay, wait, wait, let me let me just no critical no, race theory is I'm, saying I'm race is very important. Question. I'm gonna specify my question. For example, if I want to object that uh, white people are becoming a minority, ethnically, racially uh, Swedish people are are becoming a minority in Sweden and that's a problem, or that racially uh, Norwegian people are becoming uh, a minority in, in Norway, uh, the entire the the entire left wing establishment will say that no such thing exists. And if I'm complaining that white people are being victimized as white people, and that it's okay to attack white people um, because there is this hierarchy of victimology, and white people are not allowed at all to look out for their mm -hmm. interests because the intellectual academic establishment and the cultural establishment. Uh, unanimously will agree that white people are not allowed right. to be, I said because that. they I, don't exist. I agree with you. That's exactly okay. what's happening. White people are being demonized. But you're switching terms here because one point you say Norwegian and then you say white people. Well, which is it? I was just giving you an example for a, from a but, country. But they're, they're two you completely say, different things. They're two completely different no, things. No, they're not. One is an ethnic group and one is a racial construct. That's You're, you're mixing metaphors here. No, I'm not because it, it's uh, – I've said this before. It's, it's sort of like saying that, well, uh, that – Car, the, mentioning cars and then mentioning a BMW as a specific example of a car, and Norwegians are a specific example of white people no, who are not, not allowed to look out no, for their. I mean, this is an artificial category that you're imposing on a place where it didn't exist. There, right. If you go before, it didn't exist in England, which is probably the main white group of white people in the world because of their colonization of the rest of the world. It didn't exist. I, I, I made that quote. The word white people didn't exist until Middleton used it in a play in 1609 or wherever it was. It didn't exist before that. All right. Uh, let's let's move on. Um, another question from the same uh, viewer, uh, Joao, who sends three US dollars, and he sent several questions. We don't have time for all of them. But he says that Western civilization started way before Christianity took hold. Uh, ancient Greece and Rome existed and, and had a... 
prominent culture for hundreds of years, for centuries uh, before Christianity. Uh, how what, what would you say to that if Christianity is has um, created the, the culture that or is responsible for the culture that we have? What, what would you say to that claim? I said it's responsible for European culture. Okay, obviously there were two strains that came together. It was uh, Hebrew scripture and Greek philosophy. And these two things came together at the time of Jesus Christ when St. John wrote his gospel in Greek. And he said in the beginning, uh, there was Logos. This was a crucial turning point in human history. And from that point on, either you got with the program of Logos or the train of, of uh, advancement of history left the station without you. That's, that's you, what I'm talking about. Yeah, but would you, uh, would you agree that from a cultural point of view that ancient pre-Christian Greece uh, was at a higher cultural level than uh, more recently Christianized African countries, for example? Greece was unique in all of human history. It was, they call it the Greek it miracle. Of course it was. Of course it was. And God was preparing uh, the human race for the acceptance of Jesus Christ. And one of the crucial factors in the development of Christianity was the Greek language, because the Greek language was the vehicle of Greek philosophy. So with Christianity, you had the Hebrews had history without philosophy. The Greeks had philosophy without history, and Christianity combined them, and that was an outburst of of, of creativity that the world has never seen in Europe. Uh, right. So, uh, and we'll just take one final question here from from this um, viewer. He he says, and I I assume uh, to Dr. Jones again, would you prefer to live in a uh, non-white Christian society or a non-Christian white society, that is, or European descended. I live in a non-Christian white society, whether I like it or not. Yes, but which would you prefer? <laughs> what difference? To what I prefer? I, I am in, ex in existence. I live in a, if you had a, a culture of people who were practicing Christians, it's obviously a culture that is better than a group of uh, people who have abandoned Christianity. The issue here is morality, and morality is based on religion. It's not a religion is what protects morality. It's uh, morality is practical reason. Obviously, I want to live in a moral culture, and I'm saying that the color of your skin doesn't really matter much one way or the other if it's a moral culture. Right. Um, all right, then we'll go to Gaddy's Maximus sends 20 US dollars. He says for uh, E. Michael Jones, if white identity is imposed upon us by the social engineers, as you claim, and identifying as white is a losing strategy because of the current moral framework, isn't this just playing by the enemy's rules? Isn't conceding to their moral framework that white equals racism isn't conceding to their moral framework worse than accepting white as an identity. So uh, do you understand the question? Yeah. Are you saying that uh, be, I'm saying that white, if you identify as white, you're saying that you lack identity. And I'm saying that white is a category that has been weaponized. And if you identify, I said this with the, the, the example of St. Louis, 
Okay, there's a battle there, a cultural battle over should we take the statue down or not. The main weapon in that battle that Umar Lee imposed was crying, identity theft. He's going to impose the, uh, uh, the category of white supremacist on that group of people because he knows if they accept that category, they will lose. If he can impose it on them, they will lose. I backed off. I said a defensible category in this battle is Catholic. Now, whether you like that or not, that is a reality. You may not like it, but if you're going to be realistic, you have to understand that. Otherwise, you're going to end up like Charlottesville. You'll end up like that. You know, charge the machine gun, wave your spear. All right. Do you have any comment, uh, Jared, or shall we move on? Uh, oh, yes, I do. I think that until whites are prepared to say, yes, we like Columbus, not because we're Catholics, not because we're Italians, but because he was a white man who brought Western civilization to the American continent. Until we are prepared to say that, we will always continue to lose those battles. I think it's absolutely right. preposterous to say that Columbus was white. But anyway, that's I know that's the way what, you feel. Was, was he a Negro? Was what, he a Chinaman? What was he? What, uh, what, what was, was he? Columbus? Uh, I think he was uh, an Italian. He may have been a Jew, but I think he was an Italian. There's a, there's an article in the New York Times uh, about when did Italians become white? Because I remember when they weren't white. I grew up in neighborhoods that were Italian neighborhoods. You know, one thing you never saw in Philadelphia, you had Germantown, you had, uh, uh, you know, all these towns. There was no white neighborhood. There was no white town. It was always some type of European ethnic group. There was never a white town. There was, a Jew, there was a Jew town in uh, Chicago. They didn't like that. They've changed it. There's a Chinatown, but there was never a white town. There are now, everywhere you look. All right, uh, let's, let's move on then. And I do want to say that we, at some point, we were over 5,500 5, viewers live which is very impressive. Uh, so uh, a lot of people are watching this and enjoying this. Uh, all right, so let's move on. Uh, okay, Neon Noir sends 10 Great British Pound. Uh, love all three and what you do. Um, well, this seems to be some sort of... Uh, we'll just skip that question. Uh, this is some sort of rumor. Adam Green recently called. I, I, I'm not really sure about what this is. Okay, uh, Sunshine Kids and three US dollars. Have either one of the participants read any of the others' works? And if so, what did they think of them? So, have you read each other's uh, works, books, or articles? Um, and how do both of the guests foresee the future of Christianity in the white world, that is, Europe and the US? Uh, so, uh, uh, Jared, for example, let's start with you. Uh, have you read uh, any of Dr. Jones's work? And I confess, I have not read any of Dr. Jones's books, and uh, I confess that is a great uh, lacuna in my cultural formation. As for the future of Christianity and the West, I think it's not insignificant to point out that uh, in the Philippines there are one point. 7 million Catholic baptisms every year. That's more than France, Spain, Italy, and Poland combined. And in Uganda, 35 to 40% of the population are Anglican and some 30% are Catholic. This makes it more Christian than Britain, 
or 44% of the population expresses no religious affiliation at all. And I think it's not without relevance that 49% of the College of Cardinals are from third world countries. The momentum in Christianity is not in Europe. And so increasingly it is no longer, as Hilaire Belloc said 100 years ago, Europe is the faith and the faith is Europe. Uh, eventually the faith will be everything but Europe. Dr. Jones, uh, what are your thoughts? Or first of all, have you yeah, read any of Jaritana's works? I familiarize my, uh, yes, with Mr. Taylor's works. Yes, I did. And I expressed my feelings about them in, in the speech I gave. Now, in terms of the uh, uh, future of Christianity, if you're talking about Africa, yes, you're right. The church is growing in Africa and it's declining in Europe. That's absolutely right. Okay. Uh, the only hope for Africa uh, that I see is in the Catholic Church. Uh, it's riddled with corruption. If uh, it, it, I, I was in uh, Tanzania, I did a biography of Julius Nerera. Uh, you can go to Tanzania. That's a Catholic first president, uh, the founding father of Tanzania, a Catholic. And uh, you go to Tanzania, you go to Dar es Salaam, and you'll see uh, the fact that millions of dollars of uh, aid money went in and it never got out of Dar es Salaam. Uh, it's corrupt. There's a corrupt government that is basically holding back development there. They had a, a, a breakthrough in terms of uh, President Magafuli, uh, who was doing making great progress, and he was murdered uh, because he wouldn't go along with the COVID uh, uh, agenda. Okay, this is a constant problem in East Africa. They have never gotten over colonization. I've written extensively about the role that. Matumba, used clothing, is playing in East Africa. It's wrecking the economy. Uh, when the uh, East Africans awoke to this fact, they banned it. And then the Jewish rag pickers from New Jersey went to the Secretary Manukin and they threatened him with sanctions and they all backed down. So the main problem facing the Catholic Church right now in terms of its development is the Jewish question. They are cut off. The church as it exists right now is not preaching the gospel on this issue. And if they want to get uh, pro make progress uh, in regaining Europe, they're going to have to address that issue. Uh, may right. I just point out that blaming it on colonialism seems a bit of a stretch. Uh, Uganda and East Africa have been independent of British rule for 70 years now. And the fact that they are Christians doesn't seem to have rescued them from the typical African morass. I've never done a study of this, but my guess is that if you compared Muslim African countries to Christian African countries, you'd find very little in terms of social trust, in terms of GDP per capita, in terms of all the indices of progress. The Mutumba, the question of used clothing is uh, imperialism. It's colonialism. That's the neo-colonialism as it exists today. So I, I already mentioned that. that. That hasn't gone away. It's just changed its shape. All right. Uh, we have been going for more than two hours, and, and both of you are very generous with your time. If you, if you have to leave or anything, uh, if we have to cut this short, please do let me know. Otherwise, I'll just continue with the questions. Till, till when? Another four hours or what? Can you give me some type of sense of when this is going to end? We have a bunch of questions. Uh, Five thousand questions. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't really know. We probably have 
15, well, let's, 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 let's have a reasonable amount of time. And then let's, yes. you want to go for two and a half hours. Uh, that's reasonable to me. And then we'll cut it off. That sounds good. Uh, okay. Jared? I'm, I'm with you on this one, Dr. Jones. Uh, I don't yes, think we should yes. be carrying this on sine die. No, I know, I know, I know. So let's, let's just go quickly through some questions. Uh, so, uh, Rowhouse sends 10 US dollars. Do both agree that the left only sees white as a race when it's a bad thing? Too many CEOs, too many whites in Hollywood, for example. Uh, however, when you mention a white majority nation, uh, they say, what is white? How does uh, Mr. Jones propose a way to stop the left from focusing on race? Uh, Dr. Jones, any comments? I think, I think left is a meaningless category now. Left and right are meaningless categories. The issue is Jewish control of our culture. That's what we have to deal with. The CEOs that you're talking about, Lloyd Blankfein, Hollywood, these are Jewish operations, and we have to face the Jewish question. It's that simple. Right. Uh, Jared, do you have any comment on this? It's certainly the case that uh, uh, whether Jewish or not, the elites are very much opposed to any kind of positive white identity. I can't remember a single politician in my lifetime ever having said anything good about white people or having said that we contributed anything of worth to not only American history, but uh, world history. So yes, uh, whether the problem is Jews or whether the problem is, uh, and I think this is a very serious one, a matter of an almost inbred pathological altruism of whites that makes us easy to manipulate. Uh, very clearly, whites have to wake up and realize that they must take their own side in these arguments. Uh, do you agree, just briefly, do you agree that left is now a, a meaningless term? Generally, yes, Le left left, and right. Uh, uh, sometimes you will find uh, leftist arguments being made by people on the right. That, of course, goes back to the French Revolution. A lot of things have changed politically since then. It's a kind of convenient shorthand, but it's still the case that a number of views coalesce in terms of liberalism or conservatism. I think, for the most part, those categories now are still artificial. Right. Um here is a name that I can't pronounce, Domnail O. It's obviously a Prince of Bear. Uh, three US dollars. He says, Doctor, does Dr. Jones believe that if the Irish people were replaced by Polish Catholics born in Ireland, that we could say that the Irish people and Irish nation still existed? So this is a philosophical question for you, Dr. Jones. Uh, yes, the history of Ireland is a history of invasions. Uh, of, of various people coming and invading, uh, leaving their DNA behind. Yeah, they, they leave DNA behind. Uh, uh, so, yes. What what is the what what retains? The question is, what is the vehicle for the continuity of the Irish people? It's not the DNA. It's language, culture, and religion. That's the vehicle, and that can that has in the past absorbed all different kinds of DNA, and it certainly could absorb Polish DNA if there is such a thing. There's no such thing as Polish DNA, but there they, they could absorb Polish immigrants up to a certain point. It, you can weaponize Poles as well. If, if you suddenly flooded the Ireland with Poles who couldn't speak the language and wanted to take over the... Of course, you'd have a Polish-Irish conflict. 
I, I watched this in Philadelphia. There were, there were, you know, conflict between ethnic groups in Philadelphia. Of course, there's going to be contention. But as I, the, the point of this is not, it's not DNA. It's the fact of how many people are coming in. Can they speak the language? Can we assimilate them? What's the economy like? These are the, the, the uh, mediators of conflict. I, I would say that at some point, DNA is an irreducible necessity. By Dr. Jones' argument, if you had intelligent robots speaking the Irish language and behaving like the people of Ireland, then he would be satisfied. I would not be. If I were Irish, I would want my descendants, my biological heirs, to be Ireland, not some implant. But I would certainly prefer Poles to those from Uganda. I, I, right. Robots are not human beings. Okay. No, they're not. But if all you care about is the way people behave, why not use robots if you don't care about their biology, if you don't care about their DNA? If all you That's care actually about, a very good question. I think it's preposterous, but if you think it's good, okay. I don't, I don't see any point in discussing it. We're talking about human beings, not robots. Yes, but, if, yes. Uh, but, but the, the philosophical point is that if your hereditary relationship to other creatures is not relevant, then... That's an extreme example. Did I say? Did I say that hereditary heredity is not relevant? Did I say that? Isn't, isn't I said that exactly the vehicle, what? the vehicle of Irish identity is language. Okay, and there was crisis there because the Irish language was stolen from them, so that caused a crisis. Uh, it's uh, uh, religion, of course. That's a crisis too because you have the Protestant colonization of Ireland and the destruction of the Irish people through things like a, a famine and so on and so forth. These are the crucial factors. Race had nothing to do with that. That Ireland could absorb any, it could absorb Norwegian DNA, all of those Vikings that were Frodi's ancestors who went to Iceland, okay, and stole Irish women and dragged them up there <laughs> because the Irish had nothing else to offer. Okay, what about them? They were assimilated. All right, uh, we'll move on to the next question because we're pressed for time. Archie sends 25 US dollars. He says, this is my theater ticket. This is better than Netflix. And I agree. This has been a, a, a very entertaining and, and fun uh, debate. So the next question is again from uh, Joao. He sends three US dollars. He says, uh, Dr. Jones' story about the whites being attacked, but the Catholics not being attacked proves that this war on on the West is not anti-Christianity, but anti-white. They hate you because you're European. So, um, Dr. Jones, does, does, doesn't your example of if you say that you're Catholic, not that you're white, and, and that saves you, does that not show that this is not a war, that this is not a war on Christianity, but a war on white people? No, it's a war where you impose your categories of the mind on your opponent. So the people who were praying, they're praying the rosary at the statue, they're Catholics. You could not win that battle because Catholics have rights. So what you had to do, what Omar Lee had to do was say that these were white people or actually white supremacists as a way of stealing their identity and then conquering them. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying until white people have recognized rights and are prepared to defend them, then we will go extinct. All right. Um, then let's move on to the next question because we have many. Uh, 10 US dollars from JP. He says, Mr. Jones, you once said that there 
would be no difference between Europe and Africa if not for Christianity? Do you still take this position? If so, how do you explain the civilization created by the Greeks? How about how about Japan's society? How about Japanese society? Uh, do you have any comment on Japan, uh, Dr. Jones? Yeah, it was it was a, 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 a here I'm I'm tep stepping on uh, Jared's territory because he grew up in Japan. That's probably why he doesn't understand American cities. But uh, uh, yeah, of course, these people had high culture. Of course they did. And the whole progress of Logos through human history is basically taking that term Logos and going to a place like China, for example. They went to uh, St. Uh, Francis Xavier went to India. I saw his uncorrupt body in Goa. And there were Hindu and Muslim women there praying in front of this body. He looked at India, he threw up his hands, he said, this is hopeless, no one's ever going to change India, and he left and went to Japan, where he found a much higher culture and was in the middle of talking to them about the universe with astrolabs and telescopes, and then he wanted to go to China because he realized this was a satellite of Chinese culture. He never made it. He died on an island outside of China, but Matteo Ricci did. Matteo Ricci Ed not only went to China, another missionary, actually learned Chinese, which is the crucial issue here. Do you speak Chinese or not? He got made huge inroads, got to the emperor, and then died. And then this whole controversy got punted back to Rome, where they made the wrong decision, okay, on ancestor worship. They said it was idolatry when it was really just like decorating your mother's grave, you know, that type of thing. And so they sent uh, a, a Portuguese guy in who didn't speak the language, made a fool of himself, and that was the end of Christianity. It revolved around Logos because the, the Chinese had some, they had Tao. That was a, a, a preliminary step toward Logos that never developed. It was like Urta in India. There was a preliminary development of Logos, and it never developed. The only place it developed was Greece. That's why we use the term Logos. It was a completely unique experience. But it developed experience. before Christianity, right? Of course it did. Of course it did. Who's disputing that? Well, an interesting point on Francis Xavier. He did try to learn Japanese, but he found it so difficult that he was convinced that Japanese was a language invented by the devil to be so fiendishly difficult that no Christian could learn it and Christianize the Japanese. That's right. That's, so I, this shows the achievement. This shows the great achievement of these people, that they, that, that they could actually uh, go, like Matteo Ricci, could go to China and learn Chinese. I, it's incredible. That, that, that the Jesuits could go into the jungles of Paraguay and learn Guarani and then write a Guarani dictionary and a Guarani gr a grammar. It's incredible. Learning Micmac in, in Canada. This is an, mm -hmm. an enormous achievement, and it shows the centrality of language, not All DNA, that, language. <laughs> All those people seem to be able to learn English, too, but be that as it may. Uh, okay, so let's move on to another question here, uh, and I think this is also directed to uh, Dr. Jones from Row House, uh, sends in 10 US dollars. He says, the easiest example is sports. Uh, why do blacks dominate sports like basketball, football, track and field, and whites dominate hockey, swimming, weightlifting? Uh, if not biological differences, why? Uh, it is never a 50-50. Each and every sport is dominated by one or the other. Yes. Uh, do you have any comment on that? Yes. Sports is basically, it's, it's biological. 
you have a certain uh, well it's it's certainly for american blacks who survived the passage in those horrible ships there was a selection process only the fit survived there and then they developed uh, they had natural characteristics that developed over there so but if you get even if you get to let's say jared mentioned uh, the east africans if you go to Kenya, it turns out that there's a certain group, it's an area called Eldoret, and it turns out that Eldoret is over 3,000 uh, meters high, which means they grow up walking, running to school with 75% of the oxygen that the rest of us have. So that explains long distance running. I am perfectly willing to concede sport as some type of basically biological uh, phenomenon. You inherit a certain uh, uh, set of lungs and heart and so on and so forth, certain biological characteristics. That's what sports but why not, is. Why not, the, why not the brain, though? Uh, why not the brain and temperament, things like that? Why, you why do inherit the there... brain. I am not denying that you inherit a brain. It's DNA I mean, that creates your brain, but know, it doesn't know, create my... your mind. We're I'm, dealing, I'm, you, we're dealing with materialism out. here. I know, but uh, let me just finish the question that – if there's a selection press process for other physical aspects, then your brain and your other mental characteristics uh, would be now, go through the same selection little, process. A little bit of sleight of hand here. A little bit of sleight of hand. What? Your brain, what? your brain is a muscle that functions on electrochemical impulses. Your mental capacities are the mind. The mind and the brain are not the same thing. You need okay. a brain to have a mind. Okay, but the brain does not determine the mind unless you get drunk or you put a bullet through your head. All right. Uh, I think we'll just leave that aside and move on. This is the longest 20 minutes I've ever been through in my life, Frody. Uh, I thought you said two and a half hours. We're, we're, it's, we were, it's we were already half. We were all, all right. Go ahead. You're keeping the clock. All right. <laughs> keeping the clock. I, I, I'm, go, I'm enjoying can, myself so much here. here that, I no, know, I, I know. I, I'm I'm enjoying myself, but you know we. I know, I, I know. Uh, we we can we can cut it short there, and I can um, read through the rest of the the questions if if you two gentlemen are uh, so inclined. Okay, let me just see here. If we have to, I have to agree with Jared on this thing. Uh, because if I leave by myself, all you're going to do is talk about me. So no, no, we will both we, we will go we, we will both leave. Yes, together. of course. Yeah, we have to no, leave sir. at the same time. Of course. Okay? Of course. So, uh, shall we take one more question and then that's it? Fine with me. So long as it's a good question. Oh, uh, so long as okay. Let me just find the best question. Um, In the meantime, let me ask yes. you, Doctor Jones, if I were to read one of your books, which is it that you would recommend? I understand you've written a great many. The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Ah, it will right. it will change your life, Jared. Change my life, gracious! All right. What if I'll I don't? Matter want of my fact, life wait a minute. Yes. I will send you a copy gratis. Okay, oh my goodness. just right. to show you mm. what what goodwill you have created here tonight. <laughs> That's you very send, send me your email address. I will. I send me your street address. I will send you a copy right. gratis. All right. Very good. Uh, I'll warn you. Well, okay. Uh, I've read uh, the McDonald trilogy, by the way. I found that uh, very enlightening and interesting. But uh, if your book will change my life, uh, I will brace myself and prepare to have my life changed. Yes. All right. Yep. Okay. Uh, I'm just, I'm still looking through the questions here. There are mm -hmm. many, many of them. Um, 
Yes. Give us a good one. Yes, I'll, 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 try, I'll try to find a good one here. And uh, in the meantime, I don't suppose you've read any of my actual books, have you? No, I have. I have. Oh, I have read your book, but, read? but it was years ago. It's oh. years ago. Oh. and That was probably Paved with Good Intentions back when I, I did. That's exactly the one that I read. I read right. that years ago. Right, right, right. You know, at that time, uh, you were writing some very interesting things about race. Uh, I remember being struck by an article you wrote about the kind of sexual dynamic that was behind the movement to integrate. And uh, I remember being uh, impressed by your bravery in making that point, that access to white society was, uh, in many respects, uh, access to, to white females. Uh, there are very few people who are willing to put that in print in those days and very few yeah. people willing to say that today. Yeah, well, one of the classic, uh, the guy who uh, did that uh, to uh, a great degree was Norman Mailer, uh, his book, The White Negro, uh, in which he talked about, uh, 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 yeah, exactly that, exactly what you're talking about. But uh, Norman Mailer is Jewish, and that's the part of the Jewish weaponization of race that uh, found a kind of mature expression in my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. So, yeah, it did, it did lead me lead up to that. It did lead up to that. All right. Uh, so here's a question. Let's let's go with this one. <clears throat> this is Finn. He sends five euros. He says, question for E. Michael Jones. Uh, I think this is a good question for, for both speakers. Uh, you say that race is being weaponized. If that is true, uh, then should white people of the Indo-European race not be cognizant of who their tribe is, considering that the Jews' rise and power is totally based in their awareness of their tribe. Uh, so how would you respond to this, Dr. Jones, that the, the, the Jews' rise to prominence and, and their power in society seems to be entirely based in their uh, awareness of or, or their tribal identity right. and their in-group, racial in-group preference? Right. White is not a tribe. It's very simple. It's not a tribe. Tribe is uh, synonymous with ethnos, and ethnos is not a tribe. Uh, ethnos is a tribe, but it's not racial. It's language-based. Right. Well, uh, I believe that to the extent that other people see us as whites, they don't distinguish between Presbyterians or Catholics. They don't distinguish between rich whites and poor whites. They see us as whites. We exist objectively in the eyes of others. But until we exist subjectively and recognize that, like it or not, we have become a tribe. We've become a tribe that grew out of tribes that came from Europe that may have fought each other there. But here, unless we recognize our commonalities in the face of those who are opposing to us, opposing us because we are white, then we will never be able to defend our interests. There is no solidarity among white people. John J. McCloy was whiter than you, and he orchestrated the ethnic cleansing of North Philadelphia using black proxy warriors. There's no solidarity here. There's never been solidarity in American history. It's always been a conflict between groups that are both white. That's Not the whole history of America. Not true at all. There has been a very concerted white solidarity up until the integration movement, up until 1954. There were segregated schools in the North, segregated neighborhoods in the North. The idea there were, that there were no segregated was, neighborhoods in the North. There oh, were heavens, ethnic, yes. there were ethnic right. neighborhoods in the North all where right. if you, if you were uh, a, a Bohemian, if you were a Czech and you moved into a German neighborhood, they'd throw rocks through your windows. That's a okay. complete fiction. 
Well, but the neighborhoods even though fixes are real even though fixes are real that's a complete fiction but the neighborhoods that were black they were segregated too and no one there were no black neighborhoods until world war one and then world war two was the great the great look i i grew you grew up in japan i grew up in philadelphia i know what i'm talking about (sighs) well (laughs) frody frody all right uh, say something frody we need well, a he's going to wrap it up. We need the Norwegian I point of view. I am going to wrap it up. Okay, good. Yes. good. Well, I think everyone has been enjoying this. And like I said, uh, we've had a very impressive count of viewers. We've had over 5,000 viewers, 5,500 viewers, I think, at some point at the highest point. And we've gotten a lot of questions. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time for all of them. I'm definitely going to stay on and, and read uh, the rest of the questions. But I have to thank both speakers for uh, doing this and for being so generous with their time. Uh, Jared, I know that you have uh, a Amaran conference coming up. Do you want to say something about that before we say uh, goodbye? All right. Uh, it will be November uh, 11th through 13th, as I recall, uh, the second weekend in November at Montgomery State, uh, Montgomery Bell State Park near Nashville, Tennessee. And this will be one that uh, takes place despite COVID, we hope. And uh, all of your listeners and viewers, I think, would find it very interesting. Just out of curiosity, though, you said there were 5,500. How many bitter enders do we have now still listening? How, what, kind of, what kind of attrition has there been? Do you uh, dare say? Well, we still have pretty much the same number right now. So we have over 5,000 people watching right now. Yes. Gosh, well, Mr. Jones, uh, you and I will bow out at the height of our popularity. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank well, you so much, Jared. Thank you for inviting It's been a pleasure. Thank it's you, been a pleasure uh, to Dr. have you Jones, on. This has uh, been thank you. Send me, send me your street address. I'll send you a copy of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Goodbye, all of you. Thank you so much, Jared. And Dr. Jones, this has been very interesting, and a lot of people have enjoyed listening to this. Thank you so much. Do you have Thank any, you. Thank you, Frodi. You want to say? Yes. Uh, the second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit is out. Uh, it's uh, after 13 years of uh, a t- a concerted attack on me for writing the first edition. It's convinced me that I tapped on something that is a category of reality that you simply have to understand if you want to understand human history. It's a crucial turning point in human history, a crucial uh, 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 armature of human history, and it's available at culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org. All right. Thank you so much. This has been my pleasure. And like I said uh, in the beginning, that when, if and when uh, we can organize a conference again, I'd I'd love to have you on uh, so we can meet up in person and so the audience can meet you as well. Thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome.